Welcome to another episode of Adding Context, a podcast of compelling conversations centered on advancing and enhancing the human experience. I am your host, Michael Bollins. Welcome back to another episode of Adding Context. Today I'm speaking to Michelle Dickinson. Michelle, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself and what you do? Sure. Thank you, Michael. Thanks for having me on today. I'm excited to chat with you. So I'm a very passionate mental health advocate, fundamentally, and never dreamed I would be, but I uh, found myself becoming really connected to wanting to cause change uh, around mental health. And I do that because I grew up with a mother who had bipolar disorder, and I cared for her throughout most of her life, most of my life, rather. And I also struggled with depression myself. So I, um, I'm an advocate. I want to cause change in the world so people relate to mental health as um, just the brain that needs support. I, I agree, and I think that I, I think we're slowly seeing the shift away from mental health con- care and concern being as stigmatized as it was. Um, yeah. I also believe that we have a very, very far path to, to go down on this. So um, let's, uh, let's start kind of a little bit about you. Uh, where are you from and, and what kind of did you do earlier in your life? Yeah, sure. So I live in Westfield and I was uh, raised here. This is my hometown. I moved home a few years ago. Um, this is, you know, Union County is where I've always been. So, um, but I, you know, I was one of those kids that in my, in my town, most kids went away to college. I didn't do that. I went right to work. I, I started working right out of high school and uh, later got my education um, and my career was I started as a secretary in a pharmaceutical company and slowly worked my way up and uh, left the industry about a year ago um, as a as an associate director. So wow. I was quite proud of that because I put myself through school, you know, got my associates, got my bachelor's, got my master's, like nothing was stopping me. Um, yeah, so 19 years in big pharma from, you know, all the big players, Merck, Sanofi, Johnson & Johnson, Organon. So I worked for all of them, and um, and then I would be invited and nominated to give a TED Talk. And for the first time, I would share the story of what life was like caring for someone with a mental illness. And the reaction that I got from that, just telling my story of a caregiver, um, it was amazing. I never realized the power of storytelling and the power of going first. And so that sort of started the whole thing unfolding for me to really use my story and my experience to cause change. That's, that's impressive. Well done on that. Um, your Ted talk stemmed from how quickly, I I don't want to say quickly, but how you really self-propelled yourself in your career. Um, clearly you're well-respected in the industry. Um, what was, what was that Ted talk like to to be on stage that first time? It was, yeah, like the only way I can explain it is it was terrifying and exhilarating at the same time, (laughs) sort of like starting my own business, terrifying and exhilarating, right? Like there's a lot of opportunity. There's a lot of, uh, you know, potential and there's a lot of opportunity to mess it up. So it was, uh, 11 minutes. It was months of, of preparation and, um, and store and really writing a powerful story around my experience so that the audience could truly understand what life was like for me. Um, 
so it was it was amazing. It was an amazing experience. I learned so much. I was fortunate to have a TED coach. Not all TED speakers have one, and I was fortunate to have one. And she just guided me and helped me um, refine my message so that it um, made a difference and made an impact on people when they heard it. How long was your talk? It was about 11 minutes, something like that. Yeah. Is that what led into your book? It is, you know, because, you know, coming from growing up with a mother who was like emotionally and mentally unavailable, I had very little confidence so when I stood on the stage and I actually, like my voice was heard, it sort of gave me the confidence that what I had to say mattered. So that sort of was, you know, okay, well, if I can make a difference on the stage for 11 minutes, what if, what if I wrote a book? Maybe people actually want to hear what I have to say. And so then I started on that process. That's awesome. Um, so I guess we'll now we'll transition into to what you're, you're currently doing. Yeah. You're... Is it a sidebar to what your primary goal is, or is it part of what you're doing, the work that you're doing with um, your partner, Sergeant Lynn Shaw? Yeah. Is that like yeah, kind yeah. of the same so, vein, um, or is it kind of a little yeah, separate? No, you know, we're both very passionate advocates. Lynette is still an active sergeant, and I have my own mental health company. So while I'm working with um, the private sector and working with companies and working with schools and educators together, her and I have come together to make a difference for first responders, um, when it comes to mental health. So, so that's like a piece of what I do. And it's also a piece of what she does because she, she's committed to causing change because she's witnessed, um, a lot of, uh, you know, painful experiences amongst her, her police peers and law enforcement and firefighters, all of it. Yeah. How did you meet her? Were you longtime friends or just you guys kind of come together because no, of what you guys do? Like, it was like serendipity. Um, I had a friend who I knew from some leadership work I was doing, uh, and I was just reaching out to him to let him know what I was doing. And he was like, you know, you really need to meet a very passionate advocate who's a, who's a sergeant, and, and she works with me. And it was like the second we met, we clicked. We both were on the same page. We were both equally passionate. And it was like, great, so how are we gonna how are we gonna do this together? Awesome. Yeah, I I have a relatively extensive background in EMS. I've been doing it since I was fifteen. So almost thirty years of my life I've been committed to to helping people in that capacity. Wow. Um, wow. The thing that I think a lot of people in the general public doesn't understand is the amount of I'll just label it bad stuff that we we see and and my time as a police officer again the the things that law enforcement and first responders are kind of exposed to on a regular basis you definitely need to have a certain mindset to be able to separate things and 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 process it so I, I commend you and, and Lieutenant Shaw for, for what you guys are doing and, and the reach out that you're doing, the, the avenue you're providing for people. Yeah, thank you. And I know it's, I think the thing, um, I think the thing that's so upsetting is that we have work to do in helping first responders proactively um, create a structure of support for themselves because they are going to experience those things. So I think it it's almost like let's not let it get to crisis, you know. 
when crisis happens, yeah. I think harder. I think I've seen kind of two sides of that. Um, in EMS, after we've had some, um, there's a couple of specific incidences that and calls that I've been on um, where immediately afterwards we've had a crisis debriefing. And in, in my county, Mercer County, New Jersey, we have, uh, at least we had, a group called the Pegasus Team, and they were the advocates that would come out and, you know, our crisis intervention, so to speak, immediately following whatever this call was. Um, but I think in law enforcement, the stigma of mental health and, and the stigma of talking about things is still very prevalent. And, and I hope what you guys are doing is going to kind of break that down and having some friends of mine in my life and their life, you know, law enforcement officers and their lives because of whatever traumatic incident they were going through or, or um, whatever event prompted them to, to end things. I think showing people that the best thing you can do is talk about it and not yeah. bottle it up is it's at least a, a step in the right direction. Yeah. And, you know, the work that we do is, yeah, we have de-escalation training, we have mental health first aid, we have all the structured programs, but fundamentally the thing that I'm really proud of that we do is we get in there and we help shift mindset around mental health. That's where it all begins is if you can, if you can get people to relate to brain health as just important as physical health and proactively nurture their brain, um, then we win, right? Because then it's not such a shameful experience to have a moment where you need support. Right. I think part of it on the law enforcement end, um, you know, is the concern that, well, if, if I say that I'm struggling with something, you know, they're going to, they're going to put me on leave. Yeah. And obviously if, if the concern is that great or the issue is that great that that needs to be done well then that's kind of the better option to take um you know moving forward um how do you normally i guess engage with law enforcement do you start out you know in the chiefs or or the directors and kind of work your way in from there yeah exactly it it comes it could come from a concerned community member it could come from um, an officer it could come from a relationship that you know one of us has with with a town um, and then we just have a conversation what are you already doing because there's already good stuff that I'm sure there's good stuff that's being done and there's work that's being done and then how do we complement that great work that's being done with what we offer you know I think the reality is is what you just said the fear of leave the fear of loss of work all of that and also I mean, I listen, Michael, I've had conversations. We both have had conversations, um, you know, Sergeant Lynette and I with, with a police chief who's like, oh, no, all my officers are perfectly fine. There's like 50 of them on the force. No, they're all fine. They all had their mental health check. They're all good. And it's like, no, like, shame on you. You can't honestly believe everybody is 100%. We're human beings. Right. Give right. them permission to not be okay. And the question that I would follow up is, well, when was the last time they had a mental health checkup, so to speak? Because chances are it was only at their hiring process. And the longer that they're on the job, the more exposure they're getting to 
you know, horrific car accidents, domestic violence. Yeah. One of my biggest pet peeves as a law enforcement officer was, was dealing with domestic violence. Um, you know, my mother, my parents were divorced early. Um, but I still can recall conversations and comments of, of how my father treated my mother. Um, so understanding that was one of the things that formed my thought process as a police officer is, you know, I, I have a very strong belief that, you know, under pretty much no circumstance should a, should a man hit a woman. Um, yeah. and seeing things like that, in some cases, some officers see that on a regular basis. I was fortunate that I really didn't see that often, but you know, the times that I did see it, it was, it was addressed as needed. So the exposure that law enforcement has, specifically law enforcement, is could be catastrophic if, if not kept in check. So yeah. I, I think I would, I, I would love to, to talk to a chief who's used that, oh, my guys are great, and, and really find out when the last time they actually had a checkup. <laughs> yeah, and that's, that's the reality, right? If you don't want to believe that any, any of your men or women are not doing well, but in ignoring it, you do them a disservice. You do the community a disservice. Absolutely. Come on, you're not going to win. So, so had, when you guys reach out to the EMS side of things, um, it's the same way you reach out to yeah. squad members, exactly. community, things like that. Exactly, and like we'll host, we'll host. Um, in some cases, we'll host, you know, joint uh, first responder sessions if that works best for the community. If not, we'll do, you know, individual groups. Uh, it depends what they're looking for, to be honest. Everything that we do is pretty customizable, but right. um, but honestly, I think it has a lot to do with her. You know, honestly, you know, Sergeant Lynette has a very powerful story herself. She has been through some things. She has seen some things. Uh, she has, you know, a lot to offer in relating to to first responders because she's been and lived you know lived walked in your shoes um so there's it's a conversation and it's a powerful conversation that can that can start to maybe break down some of the stigma that that resides in our heads and also in the community like in your work community what do you think as a society we can do to i guess more expeditiously destigmatize mental health issues because one of the problems one one of the problems that i notice is it it seems to be and and stories that i hear it seems to be really hard to find mental health mental health coverage that's covered by insurance um you know the stories i hear from a lot of people and, and even dealing with some stuff with my own family you reach out to some of these agencies and, and these practices and it's like, Oh, well we don't take insurance and, and it seems to be the recurring thing that nobody seems to take insurance, but yeah. mental health is such a crucial thing. It's it yeah. really should be. I mean, I think that's yeah. one of the bigger problems right now yeah. that I've seen. Yeah. I think honestly. Um, so yeah, coverage is always an issue, but with telemedicine, there's more and more options. Telemedicine are reasonable in terms of pricing. 
So definitely don't discount uh, doing a, a video chat with a doctor. I had three appointments last week with all with doctors virtually because of the world we live in right now. Right. So not underestimate the power of uh, connecting virtually and finding the right the right um, clinical support online. Um, I think I am hopeful. I think because we are living through a pandemic, mental health is is surfacing naturally because more and more people are starting to experience mental health challenges than they ever have before. So when more people when more people start to experience it, they start to care more about it and then they start to talk more about it, hopefully. I mean, if you look at the CDC's statistics, in the pandemic, it's like one in three are experiencing depression or anxiety. Before the pandemic, it was like one in five would experience a mental health challenge in their lifetime. Like, it's just, it's, it's just huge how prevalent depression and anxiety is because of the conditions we're living in. So I'm really hopeful um, with more mental health technology, resources that are coming out. Um, it, it's incredible, I think, what we're going to see. And there's going to be post-traumatic stress from this pandemic. Right. So there, there's all kinds of stuff going on. Um, but I'm hopeful when you ask about how do we remove stigma simply talking about it, simply relating to the brain like another organ and talking to a loved one about how you're, how you're really doing and don't BS. Yeah. How are you really doing? Because every day in quarantine or in lockdown is, is a different experience for all of us. Right. So talking about it more, I think, is, is the way. Yeah, I was going to ask if, if you knew any specific statistics like you just uh, stated about yeah. how critical of an impact the pandemic has had on mental health. I mean, I, I, I know for a fact that it's impacted people. Um, you know, some people yeah. are, you know, the extroverts need and feed off of people and, and engage with people to have that taken away. It's, it's, you know, kind of like having your leg cut off to a degree. It's, 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 yeah. it's a part of you and that, that's how you, you function daily. Um, and to have something like that taken away from you, it, it can, it can really mess with how you see things in general. Well, in, in, in reality, majority of people, I mean, like human beings are social creatures. So when you tell us to stay home and <laughs> confined to our homes, it's not a very comfortable thing. Like we need connection. It's, it's human nature that want to connect, whether see a face on, on, on a computer or, you know, unfortunately we can't, but like hugging people, right. like, <laughs> you that, know, that personal, personal interaction. Yeah. Yeah. So what are your thoughts on social media apps and their potential effect on mental health. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I kind of have my thought process, but I want to hear your words on it first. Well, I think that, first of all, it, I know what you're, where you're going with this, but I want to just highlight there's a lot of great technology that supports mental health as well, right? Agreed. Before we go that road, <laughs> there's a, I just want to share. And, and, you know, and I know you guys have for first responders, there's, there's helplines and things, but there's a great – there's a great community. I want to mention that there's a, it's a free anonymous Slack community called 18%. It's www, the number 18percentwrittenout.org. And that's a free online, it's like a free uh, Slack community of people with different channels of different types of um, mental health challenges to just chat, right? So the, the last thing you want to do is isolate. So right. if you could talk to someone else, 
you go in as a username of Donald Duck, whatever, and you chat to someone who's dealing with depression and what are you doing to navigate it? That's a huge help. So I think Agreed. technology can be a benefit in that regard, but then it can also, you know, you have this, um, you know, social media can, can negatively impact uh, how you feel. So you have to be in tune with how you feel. Like if you spend 30 minutes navigating an app like Instagram or Facebook and you come away and you shut your phone and you reflect on how you feel, how that make you feel? If it's anything but good, you really need to know that you need to monitor how much you're, you're actually taking in. Right. You know, when I, when I was diagnosed with depression, I was struggling. And one of the things that one of my dear friends said to me was just remove social media from your phone. So you're not going in there because it's the subliminal comparison that's happening, looking at the curated fakeness of people's lives that is not real. Right. So we all have, we all have a way to, uh, monitor that we have to monitor that and to take care of our brain health i agree i think being secure in yourself and and how you see the world before opening up the app so to speak and it's really the the twitter facebook snapchat uh, instagram the, the the big five or six that i think had that negative impact i, I do believe as you said technology can do wonderful things it, it I personally really maintain my Facebook just so I can maintain contact with people that I don't see that often. Right. Um, and right. I, I use the other ones strictly for, for humor value. I, I rarely engage on, um, you know, any of the uh, Twitter tweet wars or anything like that. It's, it's more for me for, for humor value just because yeah. seeing how yeah. absurd some, some people are with, with that. But I think I agree. I think being secure in yourself and then I think that helps mitigate that comparison that you start to get with, well, this person's got this. And I, I, part of the reason why I asked that question is because I think that some people use the platforms to make themselves better than they are, to make themselves feel better, to make yeah. them feel better than other people. Yeah. And I, I think that's, oh, yeah. that's, that's definitely life. harmful. Yeah, it is. But you know what? That's never going to change. The only thing we have full control over is how much of it we consume. Right. And like you said, how much you are, con I mean, like, I think we can try to be confident in who we are and, and be able to digest it or just limit it, just limit it. Come on. Like, are we, are we all going to, is something going to happen terrible if we don't actually check it? Yeah. I mean, listen, I'm guilty. I'm not, I'm not like holier than thou. I'm guilty. I'm right. on that too much. <laughs> I get it. <laughs> um, so your website, you, you mentioned something about your, your 21 points to protect our happy. Can you elaborate a little bit as to what that is? Yeah, so I have um, a, I have a two-part resilience program that I have been delivering to um, the public and the private sector based on um, a request that I got early in the pandemic from one of my clients. They said, we want to protect and we want to empower and keep our employees engaged and feeling good during quarantine, can you help us? So I have a, a very powerful resilience program where I basically, my whole goal with that resilience program is to get you okay with not being okay, because this is our reality. We're living in a pandemic. So if I can get you connected to how you're doing, give you some things that you can do every day to feel better, 
feel emotionally better, um, sort of in the cockpit of your life and not just at the effects of this pandemic. Um, and then if I can educate you on where to go for clinical support, if you ever need it for yourself or a loved one, then I win. So I, I do offer um, quite a few tips in that program. You know, one of the things I can share for people who, um, I mean, let's just go back to the social media thing. You know, fear comes from the consumption of media, news, everything that is, you know, kind of swirling out there. Fear comes from that and fear causes the anxiety. So it is a faucet of information that you can drink from or it is a faucet that you can turn off. So the one thing I share in my program is if you're starting to feel fearful or anxious about what's going on, consider what you've been listening to and what you've been watching and, and monitor it, limit it. Maybe, you know, go and get your 45 minutes of news once a day from one reputable source and then turn all everything else off. It's hard. (laughs) Yeah. Like, yeah, there you go. That's hard too. I listen to, I listen to the reports that come from my mayor, for example, because she's just giving us the facts about the COVID cases, et cetera. Because I used to sit down in front of the television and immediately start to feel anxious listening to the commentators, you know, the news and then the commentators about the news. Like, that didn't serve me. Right. So, yeah, so one of the things I share in that program is really start to reflect on what are what is your brain consuming? Our diet is much more than just what we're eating. It's what we're consuming spiritually, mentally. So we really have to reclaim the power over that. Um. It, it's funny you mentioned, you know, our diet is more than what we literally digest. It's, it's a spiritual, mental thing. Um, there's a gentleman I just spoke to who kind of refers to the four pillars of, of, of personal development, which is, you know, your mind, your body, your spirit, and uh, I'm calling a blank on it. I have it written down somewhere. But um, I, I agree. I think when you're in a good place mentally, everything else kind of falls into place. You're, you, you feel better. Um, your energy level is up there. You can think a little more clearly and, and stay more focused on tasks. So I think that's a, a huge benefit that I wish more people would understand and work towards. Yeah. Something mainly something I need to work towards myself. Um, yeah, but I think people need tangible, tactical things, and that's why I love sharing my program because I give people tools like here's literally something you can apply. You can try to do this every day and it'll, it'll literally help you feel better instantly. Like it's something different. And you know, if you're, if you're not having, for example, a structure in your day, if you're getting up whenever and you don't have the, the bookends of the day you used to have, well, what's your sense of accomplishment or what's your sense of self at the end of the day? If you just feel like I was just a waste today, I Netflixed for eight hours, like you don't feel good. So you need structure, create structure, even if you don't have to have it, it's good for us. Keeps things, uh, you know, to play off your, your reference to bookends, it keep things in context. It keeps things balanced and framed. Yes. When I, I will tell you this, Michael, when I was diagnosed with depression, I was going through a major life event. And I was adopted, so I never in a million years thought I would deal with depression. But I was I was really taken down, and I was struggling. And, and I didn't know, like, you know, I asked my doctor for medication. He was like, no, Michelle, you have to navigate it. You're going to be okay. Figure Get some healthy vices. Is what That was his homework. Go find some healthy vices. I was like, I think I, think I want to strangle you, but okay. 
it wasn't wrong. So what I wound up doing was training for a triathlon. And that gave me a little bit of momentum in one area of my life that eventually started to spill over into work, into my personal life. It gave me momentum. So find one area of your life. If you're struggling right now in this pandemic, find one area of your life that is going okay and like really run it home because that is going to give you momentum and, and possibly spill into the other areas of your life. Vices typically have a, a negative connotation to them. They do. What would be defined as a, a, a healthy vice? Yeah, I mean, like I just said, like exercise. Like I, w- I became addicted to training for a triathlon. So that meant that I had to exercise. I had to, it wasn't just exercise. I had to ride, I had to run, I had to swim. And in order to ride, run, and swim, I had to have a good diet. So, oh, well, I better eat well, otherwise I'm going to die on the course out there. <laughs> So, I mean, I had to, I had to get everything in order just so that I could perform the way I wanted to perform. And that physically was making me feel better. And that's where I was saying, like, I got momentum and then like, it started to spill in other areas of my life. Got it. Yeah. That's kind of what I, I was figuring you go to. And like we said before, when you get one thing in the right place, other things kind of start to fall in line with that. Yeah, for sure. Um, what about your five steps to the culture of compassion. Does that start with working with the youth and, and building them up? So it kind of grows out. I guess, yeah, like that, a lead? <laughs> yeah. That you're pointing to is on my website for um, companies. I work with companies. I, like I mentioned, I work with the private sector. So, you know, a lot of times an HR leader or a small business owner will pull me in and say, Hey, you know, how do I, how do I have more? Um, how do I create a culture that's inclusive of people with invisible disabilities. And that's where those five steps come in. We really look at what are they doing already? What, are, what is their leadership's uh, narrative around mental health? Is the, is the leadership setting the tone that we're going to be totally inclusive in the workplace for people with invisible disability? Um, and then there's other things that can be done to condition that culture. Because ultimately, if, if people are to perform, you want them to feel like they can be authentically themselves at work. Agreed. Right. Agreed. So, yeah. So, so how about me throwing out your empowering youth? What what kind of work are you doing with with yeah. youth? Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's so, a big thing in, in yeah destigmatizing. Well, there's, there's a couple of different really exciting things. That the the most exciting thing that I have right now is that I'm working with um, a psychiatrist um, and the founder of a suicide prevention hotline. She's got years and years of suicide prevention experience, um, under her belt. And we are building a program for educators, parents, coaches, and mentors so that they know what to look for when it comes to kids, um, being, you know, at risk for suicide. Unfortunately, um, Youth suicide is on the rise, big time, nationwide, not just in New Jersey, nationwide. Kids are, kid, kids are losing their lives to suicide. So if we can educate uh, parents and teachers and explain to them what modeling good mental hygiene looks like, mental health hygiene, then, um, and then give them the signs and symptoms and recommendations for how to stay connected to kids, we can prevent suicide. So I'm scared because of the winter months, the um, darker days, the colder weather, the you know quarantine, not being able to be outside. 
we're both scared for our kids. So that's why we're launching this uh, program for kids. That's um, awesome. Yeah, yeah. So I'm excited about that. Yeah, I was wondering if how much of a how much more of an impact um, the pandemic has had on that specific statistic. Um, I know that that's typically high. Yeah. And I know that suicide rates are higher. Um, personally yeah. speaking, I know of a number of people that have decided to end things in the last few months. Um, it, it's having yeah. the, giving parents the, the tools to, to really address it and monitor it and, and hopefully prevent it is, I think, crucial. Yeah. And I think, too, I mean, we have to teach parents how to model good mental health hygiene and how to how to have those conversations what naturally. Is, what does that look like? Uh, what what yeah, suggestions so do you mean by that? What are they doing for their mental health? What are they, are they talking about how they're doing? Are they open about it or are they just um, having a bottle of wine? Like how are they how are they managing their own feelings? Because if we want our kids to to navigate this whole experience stronger. They're looking to their parents. What are their What are their parents' coping mechanisms? What are their parents doing? Um, is it okay in the home to say, "Hey, I'm just not having a good day. I'm not feeling well. Like I, I'm really struggling today." Is it okay for them to talk about that, or is it, "Oh, well, he's mentally ill." I mean, we have to do more to normalize the conversation. So, in our program, we teach the parents, obviously they need to know the warning signs. What am I looking for when my kids are struggling? And what do I, what do I need to know if, if my child is contemplating suicide, they need to know that we're going to give them that, but we're also going to give them, um, what does it look like to take care of yourself? What does it look like to have an open dialogue? Uh, what are things that you could be showing your kids to do to manage their emotions and their feelings, whether it's meditation or gratitude or, a, a healthy practice of um, just doing doing things that are going to have them feeling um, less stressed, less anxiety. Got it. Yeah. yeah, I mean that's something that my wife and I do with with our kids is you know kind of our weekly checkups and awesome. you know, if we if we see something, see one of them off. Uh, yeah, let's we hey, what's going on? Sit down, yeah. chat. Um, what's going uh, on? Yeah, I, I think that's. I think if more parents did that, we might have a better communication. Again, it goes to working towards destigmatizing it. Yeah, I, I'm a huge fan of Joe Rogan. I, I just I love his podcast. It's so good. So he had recently he had Kevin Hart. I don't know if it was recently. It might have been this, the first one with Kevin Hart. And Kevin Hart now, granted, privileged man, right? Very privileged <laughs> man. But but Kevin Hart has this thing in his family where he has the the, the free speaking zone. He calls it yeah. the free speaking zone where his kids can just come to him and say anything and everything. And for that moment, it's suspended that they're his father. Right. So they get to literally say whatever, and he does not judge them. He just allows them to be them. Right. I'm like, that is such amazing. That's such yeah. an amazing process. Like, good for him. I, I, I love that notion. It's actually something that I've, at least with my oldest, my 15-year-old, um, we've had some interesting conversations, and you can tell that he's let some things go that, you know, that, disconnected me from being his father just to be able to vent. So I, yeah. I, I'm a huge fan of Roga too. He's one of the reasons why I wanted to start my podcast just because I like that relaxed conversation and, and just engaging with people in general. Yeah. And uh, so I'm, I'm familiar with that specific conversation he had with Kevin Hart and, and that too. And that was one of the reasons why I, I kind of pushed for that. So I think awesome. I need to give it about another 
year or so, but I might have to jump on that with my youngest who just turned 12. So yeah. give him that, that outlet. He might kind of see that he might be needing that sooner than later. I mean, can you imagine being a kid right now in the pandemic? Like, can you imagine you can't go to school? You can't see your friends. Everything is on a screen. For, I, I feel for my kids, my, my youngest was pretty much all A's and a few B's going into the shutdown of school last school year. And once they shut down, he shut down and his grades tanked. Um, wow. And he did well enough to, to move on. And now transitioning into this year, both my kids who, you know, my eldest busted his ass last year and he was so excited that he was getting into honors classes in high school as a freshman. And now his grades are just not what we know they're capable of. And the conversations I have with his teachers are, you know, we know he's got the brain for it. He's clearly shown he has the brain for it, but he just needs to do the work. And it's the same thing with my youngest. And I, they both are the type of people that feed off the kids around them. So if the kids around them are paying attention, they're going to pay attention. The kids that are around them are buckling down and doing the work. They're going to buckle down and do the work. Mm-hmm. So this schooling thing and, and being in front of a computer for hours on end with, you know, five minute breaks here, or lunch break there and things like that. For some kids like mine, it's not, it's not the best environment for them. It's not conducive for them to, to really get as much out of their education. So on that end, I'm really pushing and hoping that we can get into the hybrid where the kids can go in there at least once or twice a week. Um, you know, you're minim- mitigating some of the exposure and yeah. it, as a substitute teacher, I understand the concern and, and having teachers who are a number of teachers who are friends, I understand their concern and, and it's mm-hmm. completely valid. But at the same time, there are some kids like mine who are really, really struggling with this learning model that we're in at the moment. And, and obviously there's, there's a very justifiable reason why we're in this model. Um, yeah. So it, it's, it's a little frustrating that you have people that kind of really want to dismiss everything going on, which yeah. is just mind boggling. And then you get the confirmation bias and, and all the echo chambers that really fortify them and, and their stance. And no matter what logic you can throw at them, no matter what facts you throw at them, they're just in their little shell saying that's nope, that's, it's, it's, that's not a real thing. And so. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. It's definitely hard. I actually, I, you know, I have, taught my resilience program to educators, there was a lot of anxiety going back to this hybrid or not even the hybrid, the virtual space. So I taught that. And then uh, from that, I was asked to teach uh, fifth and sixth graders uh, listening, empathy, and compassion, because I I do teach empathy and compassion in my resilience program, just as a reminder to have self-compassion more than anything. Um, But I, I just was blown away by the teaching experience in my hat just goes off to all the educators. You have 30 little faces and 30 little boxes across your screen and you're, <laughs> and it's like amazing. Yeah. I was like, God bless you for being able to do this. Cause it's not easy. It's yeah. not easy. It's hard enough to, to wrangle them in class, let alone now they're in, all in their own individual pods with their individual distractions. And yeah. There's only so much that the teachers can do to keep them, keep them there. Yeah. You know, especially my, my kids that are completely off the wall and, you know, look squirrel kind of thing. So mm-hmm. uh, you tweeted out uh, the other day a comment referencing homelessness and mental health. Um, my mm-hmm. understanding that 
pretty high percentage of the homeless have either undiagnosed or untreated mental illnesses. Um, What would you like to see, I guess, us as a country do to to kind of combat both those fronts, the mental health and the homelessness? They they absolutely go hand in hand. And if you look at this pandemic, it's even it's even exacerbated the amount of, um, you know, people who are, have lost their homes, who are, who don't have enough to eat. It's, it's amazing. Um, the negative impact it's had and the increased homelessness. And I know it's, it's definitely an opportunity. I think that there's so much that should be done in terms of like, what are we doing? Um, and it's the same thing in the jails too, right? You talk, I mean, there's so much mental health that goes, you know, and, and the, the cycle of it being, you know, in, in jail or homeless and people are written off because of mental illness, that there needs to be more support to, to, I mean, and it all starts with how are, how are the people who are making the decisions, how are they feeling about mental health and is it a priority for them? So I got to tell you, selfishly, I, I really want people in high, level positions to be at the effects of this pandemic from a mental health perspective, because then they'll get it. You know, like if it's like me trying to convince a CEO of a company to do more for their people until that CEO witnesses a loved one struggling or struggles himself or herself, they are not going to get it. So I think there needs to be better decisions made and people who are in those places of authority chances are pretty good that something is going to wake them up because of the strain the pandemic is having on society. Um, and they'll hopefully be able to have more influence and make better decisions because these people shouldn't be forgotten. I, I, you kind of touched on something there and I wholeheartedly agree. I think the higher somebody's social standing is, especially financially, the, the further they are from subjective reality. Um, yep. You know, the subjective reality of, of people that are a little lighter in the pocket um, yeah. that, that don't have the means to navigate and, and isolate themselves from the harshness of life sometimes. Um, yeah. You know, I, I think that a lot of times the decision makers that you refer to, they kind of make decisions and then it falls into the land of unintended consequences where they'll make a decision and not realize the impact that that's going to have, you know, month, six months, three years down the road. And then all of a sudden they start seeing this and it's like, Oh, well, I didn't realize that was going to be a thing. So I think Mm -hmm. the more that we can do to mitigate and, and slow down and shrink that land of unintended consequences, by yeah. having that foresight to say, all right, if I do this now, what impact is it going to be having down the road? And the best, mm-hmm. not, you're clearly not going to be able to foresee, un, uh, foresee everything, but the more you can mitigate, I think the better your decision process is going to be, which, yeah. you know, going back to the, the courts, you know, you have massive amounts of reform that needs to be done criminal justice in yeah. in the prisons and things like that. Um, I actually am affiliated with a group called LEAP, uh, it's Law Enforcement Action Partnership, and all we're looking to do is, is push out these reforms that need to be done, and it's coming from a place of 
of understanding and, and, and expertise. The organization is comprised of attorneys, judges, active and, and retired law enforcement agents. So it's, it's people that have really been involved with it and, and see the errors and see what needs to be changed uh, for the better. And I think that that's one of the things that we need to kind of reevaluate. Well, a lot of things need to be reevaluated in those, in that context. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the more that I, you, sorry. No, I was just going to say, and there, you know, and there's some exciting things going on too. I mean, I am really connected to a lot of different mental health communities and I see the technology, the programs, the, um, you know, these small startups that are, have big visions. I interviewed a couple of people. I have, a, I have a, a small show called Michelle's Conversations That Matter. I interviewed a gentleman named Alex and they're building, they're building a home in New York City for people who are transitioning from addiction and back into life, right? Like low, low income housing, like really reasonable for them. I mean, they're private private groups doing things. I, I interviewed a gentleman named Craig Kramer, who is the mental health ambassador at Johnson and Johnson. And he was sharing that they're doing a major initiative to make mental health care accessible across the U S you know, under the umbrella of like, you know, we're expecting to deal with a mental health crisis post the post the pandemic. So what are we doing? So he was, he was saying that like by next year, there's going to be me- mental health is going to be much more easily accessible to everyone. That's awesome. And, and uh, so a lot of cool stuff going on. You need big companies that, that not only have the clout, but the, the financial ability to do things like that, because maybe in the hopes, I guess, would be that other big companies might step up to the plate and say, hey, Johnson Johnson's doing it. You know, it's, it's the right thing to do. What can we do to, to better it in our area? Yeah. I, I think that's a phenomenal idea. Um, yeah. You know, and again, it, touching on what they're working to do with, with former addicts, that too is, is another aspect of something yes. that needs to be stigmatized. I mean, yeah. kind of like what Oregon did uh, with the election where they effectively decriminalized all the hard drugs. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people saying, well, that's, that's a horrible idea. But when you look at why they did it and the, they're transitioning it from being a criminal thing to a mental health thing, to an addiction thing. It's, it's about the person. It's not about a crime. I, yeah. I think that was the right move to make. Yeah. I mean, think about it. The, the kind of care, the kind of reaction is going to be so different, right? Then, I mean, we, that's what we need. I mean, addiction is a symptom of something else most of the time. Right. 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 Most of up. the time. So let's, let's, let's get to the heart of the issue and, and help people heal. Yeah. You know, they're not choosing that. It's just, it's, it's the, it's the root of least resistance that helps them feel better. Right. I think with, in my experience in dealing with people with addictions, it's the first thing that needs to be understood is you're not going to help somebody unless they truly want the help. And that's, that's the first thing is, is trying to get through to them to show them that they need the help. To show them yeah. that they that they have in fact a problem, if they don't see it themselves, but then it's a matter of the path of healing of of getting them yeah. the help that they need. That's that's going to be effective. It's mm-hmm. going to kind of help them break that cycle that they're in, both mentally and physically, because most addictions not only take a mental toll, but it takes a, a devastating physical toll. Yes, um, yes. And then helping them transition into a good path where they can sustain themselves so they don't fall back into that position. 
I think yeah. with, with Robert, uh, what Johnson Johnson's doing, you know, offering people, you know, effectively, if you want to call it, and, and this might be the a bad phrase to use, but like a halfway house to where they can start feeling good about themselves and start being productive again and get really growing their roots would be excruciatingly beneficial to, to a lot of people. So. Yeah, I think, I think there's a lot of work to be done and I think there's a lot of great things in the mix. And so I guess like I, I hear everything that you're saying and I also want to remind people of hope because there's a lot of, there's a lot of people out there that are advocates who are passionate, who are doing things. And I mean, I just, I know so many different amazing things that are working and moving forward. So, yeah. That's good. I, I like that. And I agree with that. I think people, it's nice to know that there are people working just for the completely unselfish reason of helping humanity. Yeah. And that's, you know, it's kind of where I've started my EMS career. And, and it was the whole notion of wanting to help people and yeah. I've spent my entire adult life in the service of others and, and continue to do so. And, and I find joy in it and, and mm-hmm. just my it way takes, of, of helping people. <laughs> it, takes a, it takes a special person. Like I think about the people in my life who I know are in the same as you. I mean, it takes a special person to be so selfless to want to help. I mean, I think about nurses, nurses nowadays who just put themselves, you know, just selflessly like support people it takes a special soul. So thank you for your contribution because we all need people who, who have that calling, you know, like we're, we're fortunate that there are people like you. Um, well, thank you for that. <laughs> um, uh, with the last few minutes that I have of you, I, I want to use you as a Guinea pig. Um, okay. in, in the last couple months of developing my podcast, I'm trying to find ways to, to keep it engaging and, and, fun and light and given the, the gravity of everything we've just been talking about, I want to kind of end it on a more up higher note. So I have mm-hmm. a, a handful of questions that are, are quite random. So okay. feel free to either pass or you know, it's nothing too provocative or anything, but <laughs> <clears throat> what, uh, what characteristic are you most known for? Give you a mm, my know. compassion. I think Don't my heart yourself. Good. I like that. Now. What? I said it was going to give you a second to brag about yourself, and I stepped on your answer. So if you want to repeat that, that would be great. No. No. That's it. Um, brag to me about the best things that have happened or that are going on in the past 30 days for you. 30 days? Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I, I get to meet the coolest people. I have to say I get to meet the coolest people because people are amazing and they want to connect you to other people who are up to similar things as you. So I would say in the last 30 days, I've been introduced to some of the coolest people who have the biggest hearts and who are equally as passionate about helping remove the mental health stigma and do the good work that needs to be done. So I think that's probably um, a highlight of the last 30 days, just meeting freaking amazing human beings. Awesome. That's, again, one of the reasons why I, I started this is to, to just engage with some people that are really out there doing awesome things like you. <clears throat> what, uh, what would you think is the absolute worst name you could give your child? Worst name you can give a child? So I had this... <laughs> I had so I had a really goofy stepmom or uh, 
not stepmom, biological mom. And I was adopted, so I met her. And she used to she used to say, uh, it's a really it's kind of it's kind of a goofy name. She used to say, I own a clean Peter. A clean yeah. Peter? Clean Peter. Iona was the first name. Clean Peter was the last name. <laughs> so it always makes me chuckle. I think that's a pr- pretty bad name. <laughs> yeah. Uh, moving to the next one. Cereal. Is it super? Why or why not? Cereal? Yeah. Is, what? It, is, is cereal soup? And if you think it's soup, why does it qualify as a soup? I've actually had this question come up, thrown at it's me not, the other day. It so is not a soup. <laughs> I it think is, technically it could be, couldn't it? No. <laughs> it's got milk. <laughs> <clears throat> like I said, they're a little off-the-wall questions. Yeah, they are. <laughs> Just, to, again, all about levity and, and bright cheeriness. Uh, let's see. I got a couple other ones here. Okay. Find a good one here. Oh. Under the would-you-rather context... Would you rather blow your nose in sandpaper or use bubble wrap instead of tissue or toilet paper? Well, obviously bubble wrap. I'm not going to like make my nose raw on purpose. Gross. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Find one more good one here. Try and find something that's not too gross. Would you rather be handcuffed to the most annoying person you know for 24 hours or go camping with someone who likes you but you don't like back? Oh, camping. No, not camping. I'll deal with the handcuff. (laughs) Thank you for entertaining me on that. (laughs) You're welcome. (laughs) Why don't you you go ahead and and plug where people can find you and and your book and, and stuff? Yeah, awesome. So you can find me on my website, which is michelledickinson.com. Um, and there, everything about my programs, my resilience program for um, for teachers, for uh, you know companies. You'll find out about my five steps to creating compassionate culture. I am happy to talk to anyone who wants more information. You'll see information about Lynette and I, um, Sergeant Lynette, about the first responder work that we're doing. Would love to to talk to um, you know anyone who's interested in wanting to to have us. We also do a thirty minute. We do a thirty minutes for two tactics, a free session. So I also invite anyone who wants to just hear who we are, learn about what we offer and get two tactics. So that's like something for first responders. Um, my program for, uh, for kids around suicide uh, for educators and parents is coming out. So watch, follow me there. And then on, on Instagram, I'm posting a lot of stuff as well is Michelle Dickinson, um, 71. So you want to, um, follow me there. I'll, I'll post anything new that we're up to there as well. Got it. I will definitely yeah. make sure that I share that. And, you know, especially with the, the law enforcement first responders and nurses and teachers that I know, I, I fortunate that I, I know a lot of people in a lot of different industries. So um, what you guys are doing, I think is absolutely spectacular and, and well needed uh, in our society. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I appreciate the time you've given me and, and keep doing what you're doing because mm-hmm. it's absolutely awesome. Thank you so much, Michael, for having me. I really enjoyed our chat today. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another episode of Adding Context. 
follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at addingcontext.com. You can also support our show via Patreon. Send us feedback and show ideas to podcast at addingcontext.com.